Welcome to the preaching ministry of Tri-City Baptist Church in Chandler, Arizona. Our desire is that God would be magnified through the preaching of His Word, and that Christians would be challenged, strengthened, and edified in their personal walk with Christ. I invite you to take your Bibles this evening and turn with me to the Gospel of John. Gospel of John, we will start in the, the 20th chapter and then make our way back toward the front of the gospel as we are continuing our study and looking at the lives of their various apostles and seeking to learn from them, glean from their life, their strengths, their weaknesses, their struggles. The gentleman that I would like us to consider this evening is the Apostle Thomas. It's an apostle that trust we will see was determined, was devastated, uh, circumstances that came into life that he did not understand, and yet as the Lord worked with him, he became a very dedicated individual. But when we think of the Apostle Thomas, what do we know him for? Doubting. We know him as doubting Thomas. That really is what his uh, testimony is in our eyes. The, uh, we know him that way. Um, in fact, I remember as a child in Sunday school learning a song that said, Don't be a doubting Thomas. Rest wholly on his promise. And then it went on to talk about why worry when we can pray. But it was that aspect. And, and there is reason for that consideration. But I'm not convinced that it's completely fair. That when you stop and think of why he earned that reputation, what was it that caused that uh, popular opinion of him? And uh, we find that in this passage. In John chapter 20, where I've had you turn, that we can begin, because when we look at the life of Thomas, there there are four times that he speaks in the Gospels, all four of those we find in the Gospel of John. He's named in the, uh, what we call the synoptics, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, but he's named in the list of the apostles. But it is in, in John's Gospel that we find him speaking. And it's this, this statement that he makes here in John chapter 20 that we, we find the, the reason for that uh, view of him. And look at verse 20 with me. Uh, John, John 20, 24. We'll look, look at verse 24 in John chapter 20. Now Thomas, called the twin, one of the twelve, was not with them when Jesus came. And the other disciples therefore said to him, We have seen the Lord. So he said to them, Unless I see his hands the print of the nails and put my finger into the print of the the nails and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. And it's because of that statement of doubt that we have this understanding. Now, eight days later, the disciples are together. Thomas is there. Jesus appears. Look at verse 27 now. Then he said to Thomas, reach your finger here and look at my hands and reach your hand here and put it into my side. Do not be unbelieving, but believing. And so we see what has taken place. And so Thomas said, unless I see, I'm not believing. And so for centuries, he's been known as doubting Thomas. The record of Thomas's doubt or disbelief about the resurrection, though, is really given so that no one else needs doubt the resurrection. 
And we find that stated here that don't be doubting, don't be unbelieving, but believing. That Jesus showed him his hands, his side. And, and, and it says, but it says in chapter 20, verse 19, that the other disciples had seen that. So Jesus comes to them in, in verse 19 of chapter 20 and says, Peace be with you. And then he showed them his hands and his sides, and they believed. And actually, the rest of the apostles had the same doubts. If you read in Luke chapter 24, the women come to, it says, the other 11, since Judas has killed himself, and tells them about the resurrection, and it says that the words of the women seemed like idle tales to them, and they didn't believe. In uh, further on in Luke chapter 24, after the, the men who are on the road to Emmaus uh, turn around, they come back, they tell the rest of them that we've seen, the, seen Jesus, he's risen, and they don't believe. And so in Mark chapter 16, verse 14, Jesus rebukes all of them for doubting those reports. That the testimony had been given, that he was risen. So why is it doubting Thomas and not doubting Peter or doubting James or doubting Andrew? Well, it's really because of this statement where Jesus says to him, don't be faithless. Don't be unbelieving, but believing. The Greek word is, speaks of faith. Don't be without faith, but with faith. And so the record that's given here is so that we would not be without faith. And, and understanding that faith is based on fact. A number of years ago, I was talking with a man in, in, about spiritual things, and he had said he, he went to a lot of churches that just told him, you just have to believe. And they couldn't under, explain what that meant. What does it mean? It's like, well, you have to have faith, but it's not faith in faith. It's faith in Christ. And so he asked how I would define faith. And I said, well, it's the substance of things hoped for. It's the evidence of things not seen. Uh, let's get a biblical definition from Hebrews 11. That it, it's, it's based on the promises of God and how God has revealed himself in his word and through his son. The point is that while we have faith, that it's, we're to believe without sight, but it's not believing without content. It's, faith may be blind in that we cannot see, but it is not deaf. Faith comes by hearing the Word of God. And so it says in Romans 10, how shall they believe in Him of whom they have not heard? But have you ever struggled with doubts? I mean, we, we talk about doubting Thomas, but have there ever been times that you've questioned you wonder what God is doing. You wonder how it's going to work out. You wonder what you thought was God's will all of a sudden doesn't seem to be going that way. That's why I think considering this man can be helpful. If you haven't, most of us have. I have. And so to consider Thomas and his doubts, I think, can be, be valuable for us. Sometimes his, his doubting is attributed to, it's just his temperament. That's his personality. And I, I think to go that route is, is really a mistake. I think it's, it's more than that. To understand that there, it, it's not just that he was kind of an Eeyore personality from Winnie the Pooh, that everything is, you know, it's always going to get worse. Uh, you know, that type of person that every silver lining has a cloud and they are going to find it. Um, I think there might be some of that in his personality, but I don't think that's really fair. I think it's a mistake to simply attribute doubt to a personality. 
Some claim that his doubts just show that he was an honest skeptic. And they almost view Thomas as the patron saint of skeptics. And that, you know, they, they need to have all of their questions answered and you better be able to do it. And that they, they pride themselves in not being gullible, but in some ways they want to be pampered that all their, their questions deserve answers. And there's a danger in that because we can develop a cynicism, a, a cynical spirit or a critical spirit, and then put it under the guise of we're simply trying to be discerning. And, and that's another ditch that we have to avoid. That recognizing that, yes, there are honest questions, but Dr. Bob Sr. said that at the root of doubt is sin. Psalm 10, verse 4 says, the wicked through pride won't seek after God. And we've, we mentioned, I mentioned last week, the, the believers, the Jews in Berea in Acts chapter 17, but it says they were predisposed to believe the Word of God. They had a heart for the Word. So when they heard the preaching of Paul, they searched the Scriptures. That's why they were more noble than the Jews in Thessalonica. And it was specifically dealing with the Jews in Berea and the Jews of Thessalonica. Because if you read 1 Thessalonians, you find that the people of Thessalonica also received the Word as the Berean Jews did. And so the, it, it's a specific group. But their attitude at Berea was not, prove it to me, it was, let's dig into the Word. And that has to be our attitude. That we not allow a cynicism to be hidden under the guise of we're simply trying to be spiritually discerning. We need to be hungry learners with humble hearts, not pious critics with inflated egos. And so those are the ditches that we can come to if we're not careful when we consider Thomas. This is a disciple who really provides an encouragement for believers in all ages. There are several things that we learn about him. We, we read in this passage, as we just saw, that, that in verse 24, he's called twin. Uh, Didymus in, is sometimes how it's translated. That's the Greek word that means double or twin. The, the word here is speaking of, um, it's really from the Aramaic, and it's the word for twin. It comes from an Old Testament word, which means to bear twins. So Thomas had either a twin brother or a twin sister. They're never identified in Scripture, but he's identified as the twin. Uh, we don't know his given name other than this nickname that he is the twin, Thomas. The information that we get, as I've mentioned, is primarily from the Gospel of John. He's mentioned in the other uh, Gospels. But his, his statements that we find are here. The scriptural content all comes from the Gospel of John. There are, there are four times that he speaks, in chapter 11, chapter 14, here in chapter 20, and then later in chapter 20, and we, we see this. But he's best known for the statement that we've already read in verse 24. And we see him, though, while he, he had doubt, he's also a man of great devotion and directness. He was a person who was dedicated. And I think it's because of that dedication that when his, his view was shattered, it was very difficult to restore him. And in, it's a person like that, with that personality, who is so convinced and committed, when their faith is shattered, it takes, it takes a lot to bring them back. And yet we see that in, in what our Lord does. So I want us to consider this evening, the first, first thing that we see about Thomas was he was a person of commitment. And I would like to have you turn back to chapter 11 with me. This is the first statement that he has in Scripture, the first comment that he makes. We find the statement recorded in verse 16. 
John chapter 11, verse 16. Then Thomas said, Thomas, who is called twin, said to his fellow disciples, let us go that we may die with him. Say, okay, wait a minute. You're saying he's not real pessimistic. This is pretty pessimistic. I mean, this is a very bold but discouraging introduction to this man. For his first statement in Scripture, let us go that we may die. I don't believe these were words of sarcasm or heroism or even mere pessimism. I think this was just a a statement of Thomas's intense devotion. Thomas was that kind of a person. I mean, to understand why he would say that, you have to recognize the context of what's going on. So what's happening in John chapter 11? This is the story of the death of Lazarus. It begins, it opens that a certain man was sick. Lazarus of Bethany, the town of Mary and her sister Martha. That's, that's how it begins. Mary who anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped them with her hair. And, and, and now they've sent to Jesus and saying, Lazarus is sick. Lord, behold him whom you love. There was a close relationship. And so that's the context. That Lazarus living in Bethany, it's a town two miles from Jerusalem. Jesus hears about this, and and as we read the passage, we find out that he delays two more days. So, what's what's going on in the minds of the disciples? I mean, why would he delay? I think that they probably remember Jesus' previous trips to Jerusalem and how he was received. Because when he left Jerusalem... The last time his life was in jeopardy. You find that in chapter 10 at at the end of it, verse 39. It says, therefore they sought again to seize him and he escaped out of their hand. And it says in verse 40, and went away beyond the Jordan to a place where John was baptizing and had first stayed. And so he escapes from Jerusalem because the Jewish leadership is trying to kill him. He goes beyond the Jordan and now he's having a very successful ministry. It's going well. People are coming to him. It's going well over there. And yet Jerusalem had been a hostile environment. And so he's left there. People are being converted. Souls are saved. They're coming to Jesus. And and the hostility of Jerusalem is in the background. But that wasn't the first time that there had been that hostile reception in Jerusalem. In fact, Scripture affords four visits that Christ makes to Jerusalem, and guess what happens every time? We're not going to look at all of them, but I'll give you the references in John chapter 2. The Lord cleanses the temple at the beginning of his ministry. It arouses the antagonism and hostility of the Jewish leadership. In John chapter 5, several months later, maybe a year later, Jesus goes back to Jerusalem. He heals a man at the pool of Bethsaida. We considered this a few weeks ago, that he did this on the Sabbath day. It antagonizes, again, they're antagonistic toward Jesus and, and demand the justification. And they really say, say that, st- that healing gives them justification to stone him. And so in chapter 5, verses 16 through 18, they're looking to kill him. They sought to kill him because he had done these things on the Sabbath day. And Jesus said, my father has been working until now, and I have been working. He said, it's the right thing to do to do good on the Sabbath. And then 
In John chapter 7 and into chapter 8, Jesus again returns months later at the Feast of Tabernacles. That would be in September, October time of year. And it says in John 7 verse 1, After these things Jesus walked in Galilee, for he would not walk in Judea because the Jews sought to kill him. Chapter 8, there's an extended discussion where he tells the Jewish leaders that they are the children of Satan. They are the offspring of Satan. And they lack the truth. And because of that, they want to kill him. They accuse him of being illegitimate and demon-possessed in a Samaritan. And then Jesus says in chapter 8, Before Abraham was, I am. They knew exactly what that meant. And so in John 8, 59, it says they took up stones to cast at him, and he hid himself and went out of the temple, went through the midst of them and passed by, but they wanted to kill him because he had made himself equal with God. And now we come to chapter 10, two months later, the Feast of Dedication. He says, my sheep hear my voice. I know them. They follow me. And then he says, I and my Father are one. And again, they want to kill him. And so in verse 31 of chapter 10, right across the page, if you're in chapter 11, it says the Jews took up stones again to stone him. And he asked them, for which of my good works do you want to do this? Many good works have I done, uh, shown you from my Father. For which of these works do you stone me? And the Jews answered him saying, verse 33, for, good work, for a good work we do not stone you, but, you, but, you, you, but for blasphemy. And because you, being a man, make yourself God. And so the Jews understood Jesus is saying that he is God. And they say, we want to stone you because of blasphemy. So that's the background. Four trips to Jerusalem, four times the Jews have tried to kill him. Lazarus is sick, two miles from Jerusalem. He's on the other side of the Jordan River. Jesus is there. The ministry's going well. Why go back to that hostile environment? And so the, the, Jew, the, the disciples just assume this is it, why he's not going. So now go back to chapter 11. Look at verse 7. Then, after this, he said to his disciples, Let us go to Judea again. And the disciples said, Rabbi, lately the Jews sought to stone you. And are you going there again? Do you see the, the question in their mind? They know that the Jewish leaders mean business. They're not playing around. They want Jesus dead. I mean, he's escaped these, these many times, but, but how many times can he get away? You know, from a human perspective, we would say at some point your luck's going to run out, which really sounds rather humorous to saying that about Jesus. But don't we think that way as Christians? Then wouldn't the apostles kind of have the same concern? Look, you've gotten away several times, but this isn't going to happen every time. And, and so there's a, a seriousness from that perspective. And then I think they've also, Thomas probably remembers what Jesus has said. Jesus has already predicted his death. After Peter's great confession in Matthew 16, Jesus began to teach them that he would go to Jerusalem and that he would suffer and that he would be killed. And in Matthew 16, verse 21, it, it says that Jesus showed them that, that he would suffer many things of the elders, the chief priests, the scribes, and be killed and rise again the third day. And then after the Mount of Transfiguration. Jesus tells them, again, that they will kill him. 
So twice he's gone to Jerusalem. They've tried to kill him. He's escaped. There have been other times of hostility and animosity. Jesus has already said this is going to happen. Lazarus is dead. Why go? Jesus delayed when Lazarus was sick. And if he wouldn't go to be with his sick friend whom he loved, it must be because he's going to be killed. And so this is where, I I give you all of this background so that you will understand the perspective of why Thomas may have said what he did. Now is not a good time. This isn't a mere pessimism. I think this is a tremendous statement of commitment and devotion. Okay, if he's going, we're going to go. We're going to die, but we're going to go. Thomas isn't a pessimist. He he is fearful. The others are are protesting too. But understand that that fear feeds doubts. And Jesus offers a very interesting answer in John 11. He tells them there's no need to sneak around. Look again at verse 9. Are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if you walk in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. He said, we're not going to hide. We're going to go in the light. Jesus loved Lazarus and his family, but he delayed so that the power could be seen, that his his power in resurrection and, and strengthen their faith, that Christ was glorified in a great measure and their faith was strengthened. But right now, that fear is bringing doubts. And it was in that context that Thomas speaks up and says, let's go with him that we may die. I think that's a tremendous statement of his dedication. I was talking with somebody recently and I mentioned how Paul's comment about Demas, that Demas has forsaken me having loved this present world. And they, and, and they were kind of trying to side with Demas and say, well, but maybe he didn't want to die. I said, exactly, because he loved the world. But he's separating from the one who's serving the Lord in the the moment of crisis. And whatever his reasoning, it was he wanted to live and he loved the world because that is what the text says, and I pointed that out. But he obviously loved that more than being identified with somebody who's going to be killed. That's not Thomas. Thomas is saying, let's go with him and we will die with him. That that I, I think he understood. I think he understood the Old Testament that the Old Testament prophets had been martyred. And, and John the Baptist, who was martyred only a few months earlier than this situation, That's, that has to be fresh in his mind. And, and the prophets of the Old Testament have been murdered from Zechariah right on. The, you, you've got that. And, and so he's saying, you know what? I think we're going to die. He's not saying, you know, let's go. It'll be okay. It's going to work out, you know. Jesus knows what he's doing. We'll trust. No, he's saying, let's go, but we're going to die. And I think it's a noble spirit of a courageous heart. And I think he, he ought to be respected for that spirit. It's, it's easier to be optimistic, you know, when things look like they're going to work out. But to be loyal when you don't think it's going to work out is a tremendous statement of commitment and devotion. You know, some of the Lord's best servants have, have, have taken that attitude to willingly give everything, that dedication and devotion, and he's under no illusion that this is going to be okay. But he still wants to be with Jesus. That's a statement of intimacy, of love, that we don't usually attribute to Thomas, but I think we should. We focus on his doubting. 
But this is a statement of devotion. Thomas was not a superficial person. He would rather die than be separate from Christ. His faith is going to be strengthened in Bethany. But for now, it's, his motivation is loyalty. You know, faith is trusting the promises of God when our circumstances really don't give us a reason to believe. The strength of our faith is going to be tested. But the strength of it is resting in the faithfulness of the one that we trust. Christ would die. And it, it's easy for us to look back on this side of the cross and see how it all works out. But that's not where Thomas was in his statement of devotion. Are we willing to live for him? He was a man of commitment. But I think the second thing that we see, he was a man who struggled. If you want to turn over to John chapter 14, just a page or so, the scene now changes to the upper room. And this is where we find him speaking for the second time. They've come to Jerusalem. They're secure. They're, they're in a safe, secluded room. Jesus tells them he's going away. We find that in, in chapter 13. Verse 33 says, Little children, I, am, I shall be with you a little while longer. You will seek me as I said to the Jews where I am going. You cannot come, so I say to you. So he's telling them, I'm going away, and you're not able to come. Okay, what has Thomas just said? I'm willing to come with you and die with you. And now Jesus is saying, I'm going and you can't come. That's kind of shaking his level of devotion. And, and so then Jesus goes on in, in John chapter 14 and, and tells them, let not your heart be troubled. They're troubled because he said, I'm going away and you can't come. He says, in my father's house are, are many mansions or dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you, I go to prepare a place for you. He said, I'm going, you can't come. And, and then he goes on and, and says in verse four, and where I go, you know, and the way you know. And now Thomas speaks again. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Sense a little bit of exasperation here. Lord, I was willing to come and die with you, and now you're going away, and I don't know where you're going, and now you tell us we know, but we don't. He's confused. The, the message that he's getting he, from Jesus is confusing to, to Thomas. He doesn't get it. And, and none of the disciples are truly following this. Mark chapter 10, verses 32 through 34, Jesus offers them significant detail concerning what will happen when he goes to Jerusalem, that he will be betrayed, he will be mocked, he will be spit upon, he will be scourged, he will be killed, and he will rise again. And Luke tells us they didn't understand any of it. Jesus gave them the details, and they didn't get it. They failed to understand. He failed to spiritually comprehend what he had heard intellectually. But how often do we do the same things? We actually know what the verses say, but when our circumstances seem to crash in, we, we, don't, we don't apply it. Jesus had told them, I'm going to be betrayed, I'm going to be scourged, spit upon, killed, and I will rise again. And they don't understand it. He failed to understand. There's a difference between hearing and understanding. And what we see is that there are these times of confusion are times of vulnerability. He thought he knew God's plan. He thought he knew what the Lord was doing. And now he, he, he doesn't get it. 
it isn't working out. He's going away. He says we can't come. And he says we know where he's going. And Thomas said, just, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? You know, a person, have you ever faced that? You're willing to serve the Lord. You think you know where the Lord is going and then it gets turned upside down. A person like this, like Thomas, when the bottom drops out, is very difficult to restore because they truly are devastated. It, it is, a, it is a, an aspect that really their heart trust has been broken. And then we find that then in the, the, this scene that we've already considered briefly. But Thomas was a man who was devastated. So going back to John chapter 20, the, verse 25 is where we find the third time that he speaks. But the, again, the scene here is Jesus has appeared to the others. But, but Thomas missed the Sunday evening service. And that is what had happened, because it says in John chapter 20, verse 19, on the same day at evening, being the first day of the week, the day of the resurrection, Sunday, first day of the week, evening service, the disciples are gathered, but Thomas isn't there. The Bible doesn't tell us where he was. I, just, I personally wonder if he was just so devastated that it's like, I just don't want to be around anybody. I'm shutting down, I'm closing in, I'm pulling away, I, I don't want anything to do with it. And they're getting together, they're, they're comforting each other, they still haven't believed that Jesus has risen even though the women have told them, and now the men that on the road to Emmaus come back and tell them the same thing, and, and they're still doubting, and this is when Jesus shows up. And, and I wonder if it's because of that being shattered. His confidence was shattered. His trust was shattered. He had a plan how it would go, and it didn't follow his plan. Have you been there? I have. And so have many of the heroes of the word. And think back of David. Here is a man who is an anointed king, that he will be king, and then he's running and hiding in caves, being hunted like an animal by Saul. That doesn't seem very kingly. And yet he continued to trust the Lord. Or John the Baptist, the greatest prophet in four centuries, announcing the coming of the Messiah, and Jesus comes and he says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And it's shortly after that that John is thrown into jail. And it reaches a point where John's wondering and he sends disciples to Jesus and says, Are you the Christ or should we be looking for somebody else? You think he's rattled a little bit? I mean, wouldn't you think that in John the Baptist's mind, he's the, announce, he's the forerunner, he's the one who's Elijah, he's announcing. And so when Jesus comes, he's going to be able to be part of, of kind of being on the advanced team. And he sits in prison. And then he gets killed. And, and that question, or Jeremiah. In Jeremiah chapter 20, Jeremiah actually accuses God of deceiving him. I mean, that is a bold statement. He says, God, you have deceived me. And then a little further on in that same chapter, he declares that he will not talk about the Lord anymore. He says, that's it, I'm done. I'm not going to say anything else about the Lord. And then one of the great preaching verses comes after that. But he said, but the word was like a burning fire in my heart, and I could not be quiet. But as gut reaction was, I'm done. Lord, you've lied to me, you've deceived me, and I'm not going to talk about you anymore. 
I mean, that's somebody who's been broken. Or Elijah, a man who calls down fire from heaven. And then when Jezebel says, I'm going to kill you, he flees into the desert and he asks God to assist him in suicide. He says, Lord, just take my life. Take me out. Or Moses. When we read in Acts chapter 7, we find a little bit more of the historical understanding as Stephen recounts Moses. But after 40 years of being in the palace, Moses goes out and he sees what's going on with the Israelites. And, and, and I personally believe he really thought that he was going to deliver them and they understood that. And so he kills the Egyptian and he assumes that that will rally the Israelites to him. And then they turn on him and say, are you going to kill us too? But it says in, in Acts 7 that he, he thought that his brethren would understand that God would use him for their deliverance, and they didn't. And he flees into the wilderness for another 40 years. And the window that we have in, in Acts 7 is, is significant because it says that Moses was a man mighty in word and in deed. Do you remember his argument when, he comes, when the Lord comes and says, I'm sending you back? One of his arguments was, I can't talk. But Acts 7 tells us he was mighty in word. And I thought, okay, is he, is he deceiving, trying to deceive the Lord? I, I think probably he had lost his ability. I mean, this was a man learned in all the knowledge of Egypt, which was one of the most advanced countries at that time. We saw the pyramids this summer. They are amazing. How did they build those? without modern equipment, and how would you do it with modern equipment? They, the, 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 the math that would be involved in that, the various aspects they would pull together, this was an advanced culture, and Moses was learned in all the knowledge of Egypt. And he spent 40 years talking to shepherds, sheep herders. Not that there's anything against that, but they probably were not talking about the same level of calculus and geometry and trigonometry. And I think he, that self-confidence was gone, and now he had to be God-confident. But in which of those situations I just listed, from David to John the Baptist, Jeremiah, Elijah, Moses, in which of those was God surprised? They were. I am. We are. God is never surprised by our circumstances. We can trust him even when life doesn't go as we planned. I think his confidence was shattered by life circumstances. But I think what we see is that even when life doesn't follow our plan and the testing comes, we can trust in God because of who he is. And that really then takes us to the final scene, which is at the end of this chapter. We, we've already looked into it some, but I want us to see it in a little more detail. Look at verse 26. And after eight days... His disciples were again inside, Thomas with them. Jesus came, the doors being shut, and stood in the midst and said, Peace to you. Then he said to Thomas, Reach your finger here and look at my hands. Reach your hand here and put it into my side. Do not be unbelieving, but believing. And Thomas answered and said to him, and here's his final statement in Scripture, My Lord and my God. And Jesus said to him, Thomas, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. The final statement here is that of being willing to believe without seeing and the blessing of that. Blessed are those 
who have not seen yet believe. How do we strengthen our faith when we struggle, when it doesn't seem to work out, when our circumstances don't make sense? We have to get into God's Word. Faith comes by hearing the Word of God. It may be blind, but it's not deaf. And we may not see in the dark, but we can trust what He's revealed in the light. And so we need to be in the Word. We need to understand that we need to be willing to believe without seeing. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed, as we saw. We need to get into the Word, as I've mentioned. Going back to chapter 14, verse 7, If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. The Son reveals the Father. We have the Scripture that reveals the, the Father and the Son. And we need to live in the reality of what God is doing. That God has a plan. As Thomas says, and this is a tremendous statement, my Lord and my God. You have control. I trust you. You are God, the Son. What a great statement. This is a man who's been restored. This was a man who struggled I think was shattered when things didn't go the way he thought they would but now he surrendered that's not how he entered the room I'm, I bend down this road not going there again unless I see the marks in his hand the mark in his side and put my hand in there I'm done and now you see him surrendered my Lord and my God where is it that we need to do that you know, are there time, areas where we need to apply these truths that circumstances don't seem to be going like we thought they would? Well, I thought if I served the Lord, this would happen and this would happen and these aren't happening and it's gotten worse. That's what happened to Thomas. Okay, well, I'll go to Jerusalem with him. I'm willing to die with him. He's going away. I can't come. And then, unfortunately, he also ran away as all of the disciples forsook in that moment. And now he's devastated. He's not with them when the Lord comes. And when they tell him he's alive, it's like, no, I'm not buying it. Fool me once. <laughs> he's not going down that road. But he needs that time with the Lord. And our Lord's grace to him, but also so that we will not be unbelieving. How do we believe? We saturate ourselves with the Word of God. Because God is not caught off guard with any of our circumstances either. Many years ago, Martin Luther was going through a very difficult time. He was despondent. He was depressed. And one day his wife came into the room dressed in black, the black of mourning. And Luther said to her, did someone, someone die? She said, God has died. Luther said, that is a terrible thing to say. And she said, then why do you live as if God is dead, if he's still alive? I wonder sometimes if we act like God has died. We can learn from Thomas. Don't be unbelieving, but believing. But I don't see how it's going to work. No, then cast your burden upon the Lord and he will sustain you. Casting all your care upon him. Why? Because he cares for you. The Lord cared for Thomas. He cares for us. And he will take care of us. So while we think of Thomas usually as doubting, 
I trust that our time this evening has caused us to see this was a man of dedication, of devotion, who was willing to go with the Lord and die with Him rather than be separated from Him. But when the bottom dropped out, it took this personal intervention by Christ to restore Him. And part of that restoration is for our benefit. So blessed are those who believe without seeing that He would increase our faith. Let's pray together.